The Real Estate Sessions is sponsored by AdWorks. AdWorks makes digital advertising brilliantly simple. Choose your zip code and build your brand. Enter an address and promote your listings. Or upload your list and stay top of mind with your sphere of influence. And if you go to adworks.com slash billrisser, you'll do more than just build brand awareness or nurture your network. Right now, you get to save 15% off your purchase, and I get to send 10% to the Colon Cancer Alliance, an organization that means a great deal to me. That's adworks.com slash billrisser. You know, the, the means to produce anything you want, that's not really a problem anymore, right? Um, but what is, a, what, is, what is more interesting, I think, is that I don't think that we've really solved the people problem as, as an industry. There are fundamental sort of fears and questions that our customers have around our value um, and around our expertise that are in doubt. Welcome to the Real Estate Sessions, where industry leaders share their stories and offer tips and advice to real estate professionals. Now your host, Bill Rissa of Fidelity National Title in Tampa, Florida. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 109 of the Real Estate Sessions podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing the show with a friend. It's, it's how we grow. And, and if you really like what you're hearing, go ahead and head over to iTunes. Maybe leave a rating and a review. I appreciate it. Today's guest, I've, I've had the privilege of meeting before at an Inman Connect event in New York City a few years ago. And at that time, I believe he was transitioning between jobs. And appropriately enough, I think he's doing the same thing right now. We'll find out soon. I'm talking about Matthew Shadbolt, the Chief Product and Marketing Officer at Inman News. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Hey there, Bill. Great to, uh, great to talk to you and great to be here. Now, I know that um, a few of our, our listeners, probably a couple of them, just an odd person or two, don't realize that you're British. But maybe with that little introduction in your voice, they do now. Where in Great Britain did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Somerset which is in the sort of far west of England, very rural. Um, The nearest city is Bristol, which is a good two, two and a half hours drive away from where I actually grew up. So the best way I can characterize it is if you if you sort of imagine, you know, those movie openers of Jane Austen dramatizations and you have the rolling English countryside, the dry stone walls, fields of sheep and cows that kind of thing, like like sort of beautiful valleys, like that's that's pretty much what it's like there. It's it's farm country, um, so it's like the equivalent of coming from sort of Kansas or Iowa or, or uh, something like that here in here in the states. Now, did your father work in the area there? What did he do for a living? Yeah, he did work nearby. Um, my father was in the navy, so we actually moved around uh, a, a fair bit when I was a kid, uh, moving from. Uh, naval city to naval city and um but he got a job at uh, at an air base in somerset uh because he was a, a helicopter engineer um so you know we moved around a lot but we also sort of traveled a lot with as well um we had a, had a sort of fairly cosmopolitan upbringing in terms of you know going to to going on family vacations to europe and up and down the length and breadth of uh, of England, um, going to things. So I think my my parents were pretty good at sort of exposing me to a lot of historical things. Like I remember going to a lot of castles and uh, sort of stately homes and art galleries and things like that. So um, they they were pretty good about um, you know travel and things like that. And I think I think it it ultimately probably sowed the seeds for uh, 
forgetting the travel bug and moving around a lot when I was at college, and then ultimately moving to America uh, later on uh, professionally. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but but I I love it when when a guest you know has a, a little bit of a sports love and and I want to talk to you about yours. You mentioned a, a little something in a conversation we had, and uh, so I know you're a I'm going to call it a big Yeovil football club fan. And I'm going to tell you right now, I had no idea what that was until I looked it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's you use the word love. Uh, it's a tough love being a, being a Yeovil Town fan, um, for sure. They're a, they're a League Two team, um, which is the fourth, the fourth league down. Um, so there's some distance from the from the English Premier League and the Chelsea's, Manchester United's and Arsenal's of the world. They're, they're a very small club, club, but, um, but I really love them. They're, they're my local team from when I grew up and um, they never, they never really come to anything. They've had a few, a few good runs uh, over the past, over the past few years, but um, they're just, they're just a very, very scrappy, you know, much loved local team. Um, It's, it's, it's a, you know, I, ha- I actually have a parallel here in the states because I'm actually a Browns fan as well. So um, they're 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 actually pretty close in terms of uh, achievement with with the Browns. Um, that's for sure. So I picked picked two winners there for sure. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Wait a minute. How it's tough. How does a kid from Somerset fall in love with the Cleveland Browns? Ah. Uh, now this is this is I tell the story uh, quite a lot because it's the first thing people say is like how on earth did you become a Browns fan? Right. Um, when the NFL first started to be televised in the UK, uh, it was 1985. So I was um, 12 then, and um, it really, really caught my imagination, and almost certainly started to really sow the seeds for moving over here. Because I would watch those games and we would get one game a week and it was usually just highlights. It was like an, like an, an hour or a 90 minute show. Sure. And you would get like, like the highlights of one game and then you would get the scores sort of recap as part of this. And it was Frank Gifford that used to do the coverage. I do remember nice, that. Nice. And, um, and it was sort of specifically packaged for the English audience who, you know, thought that this was kind of kind of really nuts. You know, like all the all the padding and the pageantry of it all. And. Um, it's really kind of this incredible spectacle that we had never really seen before. Um, so, you know, the first ever Super Bowl I watched is Chicago Bears, the refrigerator, Jim McMahon, Walter Payton, um, you know, incredible experience where they just crushed the Patriots. Um, and, um, you know, I, I started to watch a lot more of these things on a regular basis, sort of 85, 86. And I said, well, you know, I should probably pick a team. And I remember watching the sort of the Goodyear blimp footage going flying over, um, flying over Cleveland, and it was cold and gritty and industrial. And down there in the dog pound, you know, you got like the big guys with their shirts off with the letters painted on them and the dog masks. And the Browns were really, really good then. Mm-hmm. Um, they got to the championship game two two years in a row. And, you know, they very famously sort of choke with uh, against Denver two years in a row. That's, that's right. Like you got the yeah, right. yeah. and all and the, the goal line fumble from Cleveland, all, all those kind of things. Right. But I thought, you know, this is a team with some real heart and they have this incredible following. And there was something about that aerial footage of like the industrial 
Ohio sort of area that really sort of captured my imagination. And I thought, you know what, this, that's, that's my team. That's a team I could really get behind. And, you know, they had these, those two sort of amazing years, Bernie Kosar and um, Ernest Biner, you know, great, yeah. great player. And um, I thought that's my team. So I'm going to support the Browns. I'm going to be a Browns fan. And, you know, in hindsight, it's an absolutely terrible choice. Yeah. You know, because what happened to the Browns, like after, 87 you know where, where there's periods where they don't even you know they move to baltimore they, they don't even have a franchise at some point mm-hmm. and then they sort of come back later on and they're still you know they got a lot of they got a lot of like first round picks let me put it that way um you know and and you know but there's something about them and it's it's very similar to my to my sort of passion for yeovil town is there's something about cleveland that just makes me really believe that 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 they're going to do it um it's so funny. Last season, they won one game. And um, I remember getting a lot of promotional emails that were selling game winner jerseys. That, that's how bad it got. That's how bad it got. It's, it's like you could win a, a game. A game winner jersey was available. I was like, oh, man, life is tough for these guys. One of my sort of bucket list things is to, is to go and, and see a game in like the dead of winter. Um, you know, unfortunately, January and, you know, January and sort of late December games aren't really on the schedule for Cleveland. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, to just go and see it in like sort of freezing cold and, and just go see a great game, you know, like against against the Steelers, like Cleveland Steelers or something like that. Sure. That'd be really great. I think. Look, Sean Carpenter is within driving distance. You and I and Sean, <laughs> we're going to do that so- sooner than you think. That would be so much fun. So you might be, you're the second Browns fan I know. The other guy is Jim Plummer, a realtor in Phoenix who's from Cleveland. Um, so I know two Browns fans now. That's great. There you go. We, we exist. Let me, Somebody's going to love them. So it's funny how you, as a child, you picked up this love for American football. But and I'll tell you what, there are, there are, I call millions of people today because of the coverage of the Premier League and La Liga and Bundesliga and all this stuff. There are a ton of, we'll call it real football lovers over from Europe. That are happening here as well. That's kind of a neat, neat to see it happening both ways. There's this crazy thing that happens in the in England in the in the with all the soccer clubs. I can only explain it like it's almost like saying, "Hey, in baseball, all you clubs, even you single A and rookie league ball clubs, you're all going to play in this tournament, and you might end up playing the Yankees." Is that am I right? Is that what that is it's called the FA Cup? Yeah, the FA Cup. It works exactly like that. It's it's like if you would take were to take like all the college football teams. And like every single sort of minor team, right up to you know the people in the NFL, and they all compete against each other. It's a knockout tournament. So the you know the the chances of you know Yeovil Town playing Manchester United are actually pretty high um, in inside of the FA Cup, and it's a great thing that the sort of country really sort of rallies around. And it and it every now and again there'll be some little club that will have this incredible run of success um but it's a knockout tournament and it, it ends up uh you know with a big game at, at Wembley Stadium at, at the end between between two cl- two clubs it's usually premier clubs right. um but every now and again you'll get somebody that's you know a massive massive underdog um yeah it's a great tournament great spirit around that thing for sure you go to college in in uh, Great Britain and what were you going? What was what were you working towards? What was the uh, what was Matthew thinking about as he's 23, 24 and headed out, you know, into the world? 
So, so yeah, so I went to college um, in London. So I moved from Somerset to London and I, I studied at um, Kingston University, which is in the suburbs of London. Um, it was a great time to be in London. I was, I was there in the mid 90s. So, you know, that's right at the height of Britpop. Mm. And, um, you know, was was a huge music fan. Um, still am, but huge, you know, huge music fan at the time. Um, you know, would would uh, go out and see all the all the great bands at the time, and um, it was just a really good spirit um, in the country at, at the time. You know, England were winning in the in the football at the national level. Um, Tony Blair came in uh, as as a new prime minister, and there was a lot of energy around that. Um, and um, you know, there was just a really good sort of um, vibe, especially in London. It's a really really good time to be a student, but then. I left when I graduated college in London in 96. I went and did two years uh, for my master's in Holland. I lived in the the south of Holland in a a town called uh, Maastricht. Um, And I studied at a place called the Jan van Eyck Academy, which is a very, very uh, small academy. They only take eight people a year per, per discipline. So there's uh, art, design, and theory are the three disciplines. So there's only ever 24 people there um, at, a, at a time. Wow. And um, uh, I was in the art department, but it was it was really, um, really predicated on this sort of cross-disciplinary stuff. So when I was at college, I went to college and studied art history and photography, but I was really interested in um, uh, digital photography. I remember us getting Photoshop 1, um in the in photo lab you know it's black and white you you couldn't really do anything no type tool you know very very limited but um but i was like there was something that really sort of caught caught my attention with that stuff i was like this this seems like really really interesting the idea of being able to do all this stuff on the computer so i went to i went to holland and i mainly even though i was in the art department i i really really worked very very closely with the design um faculty there um and spent most of my time in front of a computer there and end up, ended up making, learning how to make websites, learning how to make uh, CD-ROMs. That's how old, that's how long ago this was. Learning how to make CD-ROMs, video games, virtual environments, um, 3D modeling. Uh, and I, I, I learned how to become a designer there. Um, and I learned from some of the best. They had an incredible faculty there. Um, you know, one of the teachers was the guy that had designed the money in Holland, which was you know, fairly intimidating to have a one-on-one with him. Wow. Um, but uh, but I learned to be, how to become a designer. So when I came back after two years in Holland, I had a, 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 a professional skill in a way that perhaps you wouldn't have leaving college with like an art history art history degree. You know, in in quite the same way. So um, so when I when I came back to London, I started to sort of apply for web designer and sort of interactive type jobs and um and then was was fortunate to get a job at the shopping channel in london um and that's that's sort of my 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 journey through sort of college into my first job i started at the shopping channel that was my first my first uh, gig what was that the gig that kind of then was that helped you transition to the united states as well yeah that's 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 exactly it i uh there were uh, London, London-based company, um, UK Shopping Channel, but the mothership was uh, in uh, just outside of Philadelphia, Chester County, Philadelphia. 
we would often go back and forth either for training trips or, you know, just to sort of learn uh, how those teams worked. And then we would sort of take all those learnings back and, and sort of build them into what we were doing in the UK. Um, but I worked very, very closely with the US team. One of my bosses um, in the UK actually transitioned to take a, a more senior role at the mothership in, um, in the US and a year later invited me to come over there and join him. And it was the weirdest, weirdest, most surreal experience ever because the phone just rang one morning on my desk and it was, it was my former boss who is now working, working in, the, in, in uh, QVC US. And he said, you know, I know that you're interested in, in coming to live and work in America. I think I might have something for you. And he explained that they were looking for a head of design on the broadcast TV graphics side. And um, he sort of outlined what they were looking for. And he said, um, he said, just have a think about it and see, you know, let me know what you think. And I remember putting the phone down and this, these, were, this is, these were in the days where I used to be a smoker. Um, and I went outside the building and I sort of had a cigarette and I was thinking about it. And then I had another cigarette and just did another lap of the building, really thinking about it. And I was like, well, you know, I know I have a week to think about this, um, but I think this is really what I want to do. So 15 minutes later, I called him back and I said, OK, let's uh, let's think about what we could do here. Um, and that was that was how the journey started for me. I didn't I didn't really spend too long thinking about it because I, I think in many ways I'd always been thinking about it. Right. This is late 90s, right? When this happens. This is, yeah, this is like, like late 99, early 2000 that we started to have this, this conversation. Yeah. Okay. Then I, you entered the world of real estate and boy, way to do it. Uh, you know, way to start small at a little boutique brokerage. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. No pressure on that oh one. Right? Gosh. Yeah. Let's talk yeah. about you and the Corcoran group. Sure. Yeah. This is, so I'd moved to New York. So I, I moved to Philadelphia and then a number of years later, I moved to New York to go work for, uh, for, for Corcoran. You know, one of the things that I was really interested in is just really focusing on the web. Um, and, you know, when I joined Corcoran, I knew very, very little about real estate, but I knew a lot about the web and how the web worked and, and had some real thoughts about where the web was going. So um, I joined Corcoran in 2006 and um you know they were they were in a very very interesting place in terms of their organization and their technology in particular. So they had recent Barbara Corcoran had recently departed the company. She had sold the company to NRT, and sort of literally, quite literally, rode off into the into the sunset on a on a white horse. Her goodbye party was was literally that her her on a white horse riding off into the sunset. Awesome! Uh, what a character. She's yeah. she's really amazing. Um, and as a result of Barbara's departure, there was new leadership and there was a new CMO that they brought in and they were looking for a web guy. And, um, it just so happened that our paths managed to cross, um, just exactly at the right time. And I got talking to them, um, and I had a number of interviews with, uh, with Pam Liebman, their CEO and Christina Panos, who ended up being the CMO there. Um, and just to get a feel for like, kind of what they were looking to do. And Corcoran had always really prided itself on, on a spirit of um, 
being fairly forward thinking in terms of technology, which is great. But a lot of their efforts had really just been focused on their website. Um, so early 2006, if you sort of imagine what that looked like, you know, there's no Zillow, there's no Facebook, there's no iPhone. Social media is not something people are talking about. Um, Google is still pretty nascent in, when it comes to things like, you know, maps and, and even search uh, sophistication, certainly buying ads in Google, for example. Um, so over the course of uh, uh, almost nine years, I sort of, my, my, my job there was to sort of help Corcoran navigate all of that technological change that happened. Um, so when I started, and this is the great irony of my, uh, my work at, Cor at Corcoran, is when I started, they had, um, they had a website and they had one advertising relationship, which was with the New York Times. Um, so we'll get to that later. But, you know, my, my work there, a lot of people in the industry know my work in social with mm -hmm. Corcoran in particular, I think. Mm -hmm. But we did a ton of stuff there around app development, video social, um, internal tools and CMS type things. Um, it was a, I was, I was afforded an incredible amount of opportunity to be very, very creative with, um, with the technology and, um, and also, and also their brand. I was given a lot of latitude with the corporate brand, right. um, as it existed, uh, on the web for sure. One thing I'll never forget about your, when you were at Corcoran was, the way you embraced location-based stuff as it came out. I mean, it was amazing what you were doing, you know, with uh, where people were uh, in, a, in the city and what they, you know, if they're checking in at Foursquare or, you know, all those different opportunities when they came about. Yeah, it was a, it was a ton of fun. And, and it, it, it's been a very interesting journey because I, I, think, I think it was sort of a one-off moment where um, you had so many new platforms launching all the time and new new services launching all the time that Corcoran was Corcoran was able to deliberately sort of position itself as very innovative in taking advantage of a lot of these things and and we we deliberately sort of fostered a, a a very clear climate of that um, a lot of it as you said centered around location um, and we partnered very closely with people like Foursquare um, which was an incredible amount of fun incredible amount of fun um and but at the end of the day it was all about sharing what's inside an agent's head that's really what we thought we we did is is we took a perspective of we are here to help you navigate new york city and anything you want to know about new york we are here to help and it's either going to come from the brand or it's going to come from one of our agents but nobody knows this stuff better than us um and everything we did was sort of informed by that that spirit sort of like a very, very clear sense of guidance and insight, um, but but in a way that's not afraid to have some fun as well. You know, we we weren't we weren't afraid to be chatty on Twitter, or to make jokes about about things on Facebook, and um, you know, we didn't take ourselves too seriously, which I think is important here as well. So that's that British sense of humor you brought over to the to the group, right? <laughs> Very dark, sarcastic sense of humor. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you, didn't, you didn't quite go Ricky Gervais on everybody, but you know, you had to. <laughs> I love Ricky Gervais. That's that's totally my humor. Uh, everything to do with Ricky. I love him. My wife's a massive Anglophile, and so I'm I'm, I'm exposed to it through osmosis. It's great. Um, <laughs> so you're talking about you know what's in an agent's head is kind of the most important information to get out. That still applies today. That's not 
changing, is it? It's still, how do they get that information out to show that they're the expert? Yeah, it's a, it's a fairly evergreen idea that, that quite honestly is always going to resonate with the customer. Um, it, it's something that actually sort of came back during my time at the, at the, at the New York Times as well. It's just, this idea of being relentlessly helpful never goes out of style. And um, the the best agents I saw at Corcoran always did this really well. And um, one of my one of my favorite anecdotes around around this kind of stuff was about sort of not being salesy with what you do, especially online. And you know, I remember having a session with there was an older agent, more, more tenured agent, and uh, you know, tremendous amount of experience, sold you know, incredible penthouses in Tribeca and he had taken this younger very hungry agent under his wing and I met with the I met with both of them and the younger agent was like right we're going to do this on Facebook and we're going to post listings here and we're going to you know we're going to we're going to blow it out on on Instagram and we're going to do all this stuff and you know incredible sort of energy around him but very very um aggressive in terms of the the sell Right. There is a lot of selling, like come come to our open house. And, you know, this this is, you know, there's a motivated seller and all this kind of stuff. And I remember the 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 older agent sort of just just sort of leaned back in his seat. And he was very wise. And I remember him saying, he's like, you know, the worst thing you could ever do is let them smell your commission breath. And I just thought, man, that's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is, is just never, ever let them know that. Um, that's obviously, you know, what the agent is sort of, that's the result, the end monetary result for the agent. But this idea of being able to smell the cell, if you like, is right. such a turnoff for people um, that, you know, you, you sort of, I feel like I, I see it in Facebook that this kind of thing that there's a, there's, there's, there's sometimes there's like a desperation to the posting, right? There's, a, there's, and there's, there's this, this sort of hunger for attention and this sort of rabbit hole people go down uh, around likes and engagement. And um, it's a very, very interesting thing to see because on the flip side, you know, I see agents being incredibly helpful and, um, really thinking about service and community and how they serve the communities um, in really sort of innovative and helpful ways. And those are the people that are growing um, and, and sort of being recognized and, um, you know, really, really doing great work, I think. Boy, you've got to resist that urge to sell on social. It's tough because it's a platform and it feels like you can scream from the rooftops and everyone will hear it and everyone will love it. But you've got to, yeah. you've got to fight it, right? Right. Or, or even just selling in real life, you know, that's, yeah. it's, unless it's understood, you know, like, like when you go to the car dealership, it's understood that you're going to be sold. Like that's why you're, that's why you're in the building. Right. Yep. <laughs> um, like there's a, there's an understood relationship there. Um, that's not quite as overt when you're, uh, you know, when you're working with a realtor, I think. That's I, I completely agree. Let me, let me ask you about um, the, the, the transition away from Corcoran then. You'd mentioned the New York Times earlier, but you ended up actually taking a position in the, I want to call, I guess, the real estate department, right, of, uh, of the gray lady. So let's talk, how did that come about? Yeah, um, it was a very, very similar um, journey from QVC UK to QVC US. Literally, 
one morning the phone rang. I mean, totally out of the blue, you know, was not, you know, not looking or anything like that. Um, I had, uh, I had had some health issues um, during the, the later years at Corker. I'd become very, very sick at one point. And Corker were incredibly good to me, incredibly good, really looked after me, um, were very patient with me on, on sort of a fairly rocky journey. And, you know, that kind of thing buys a tremendous amount of respect and loyalty, a tremendous amount of respect and loyalty. So when the phone rang and it was it, it was um, the New York Times, I was very torn, very, very torn about this. And they said, you know, we're looking for somebody to come and run the real estate department at the New York Times. Um, so I would I would essentially act as the general manager for everything to do with real estate there. And I had been a, a fan of the New York Times for a very, very long time, long time reader. Um, I'm a big believer in what the New York Times stands for. Um, and we had worked very, very closely with the Times over the over the years at Corcoran. We've been an advertiser there. Um, and I always sort of been interested in the journey that the Times is going on. They're a 160 year old organization, but undergoing immense technological and cultural change internally. Um, especially as the news becomes free everywhere. And the idea of paying for the news is just not something that, that resonates with people, especially younger people. So I said I would talk to them and I went in and I had a few chats with them and, um, and decided to sort of pursue the interview process with them. And I had um, 17 interviews there. Um, it's a, it's actually quite difficult to be hired at the New York Times. You have to go through quite a lot of process to be hired there. So, so I went through 17 different interviews um, um, with, you know, numerous people, strategy people, real estate people, newsroom people, sales people, design people, project management people, you know, all, all sorts of people. And so the vetting process is very, very extreme, I would say. The thought in the back of my mind is, you know, I've gone through a pretty significant overhaul of my health and come out in, in a positive way on the other side if I don't do this I will always regret it and you know I'll, I'll just be sat in the office at Corcoran always thinking about what if and I can't think like that anymore um, you know I I got quite a scare with my health and um I just, I just really had this kind of carpe diem kind of philosophy. And I said, if I don't do it, I'll always regret it. So let's just go for it. And um, I have no regrets. I'm really, really happy that I did it. It was, it, the Times is an incredible place to work. Um, I was very, very sad to leave Corcoran because they had been so good to me and I'd had an incredible journey with them. But, um, you know, quite honestly, when the New York Times calls, it's a very, very difficult thing to say no to. Um, I, I couldn't even imagine. I, I remember David Carr speaking at a Nimmin event, the late David Carr, right? And uh, yes, what an yes. amazing. And those those people are probably just everywhere in the halls. I would guess, right? Well, I mean, the the idea that you know you go in there and you start working there, and you share the elevator with David Carr, mm -hmm. or um, Andrew Ross Sorkin, or Sam Sifton from the you know from the cooking desk, right? And it's very difficult not to be starstruck by your coworkers, by your own coworkers. Right. 
and you know it, it it's it's an inc- there's an incredible culture there um they're they're trying to do some very difficult things in terms of um uh how they think about speed how they think about technology how they think about accuracy um their relationship to other news organizations i think the you know i was there for the election cycle um and it, it was it was fascinating to see how the new york times operates in the face of everything that was going on absolutely mm-hmm. fascinating it's in, in uh, once in a lifetime experience without question right i want to double back a bit you talked about your your health scare uh, you and i share a we're part of a fraternity that no one ever wants to be in how's that is that a way to put that yeah but that's a very good way of putting it yeah, yeah. so we we both uh, were cancer victims but there were were a part of that subset of that fraternity where we're both cancer survivors. Um, I was very public about my um, battle and so were you. And, and I always like to ask people that were public, was was there was it a tough decision? Did you consult with your wife or did you just know that this was something you wanted to kind of make sure everyone was kind of on board with? Um, I don't, I don't really remember. I mean, I, at the time I was very social because of my job. My, my my job forced me to be incredibly social right. and very, very active because that's that's what I did all day was was, you know, building the Corcoran brand through Facebook and Twitter and, and numerous other things. So for me, it was very natural to be to be that open. But when something that serious happens, um, it definitely changes your perspective on what's important. And a lot of the work that I was doing, you know, around Corcoran's social efforts became a lot less important um and and rightfully so i think um for me it, it was i didn't feel a desire to sort of tell everybody um in terms of sharing it but i think that the the resulting outpouring of support was incredibly helpful for my recovery um to know that people were cheering me on and wanted to, the best for me. I number one, I had no idea people felt like that um, about you know uh, 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 about something like this with with me. Um, so I was incredibly humbled and incredibly flattered by it. Um, and I've never seen another industry do this. I, I, I'm I'm you know I really believe that the real estate industry in particular is incredibly good at looking after each other. Um, And I really believe that. And I'm very, very passionate about, about people that work in real estate because I really believe that they care. And I saw it, I saw it firsthand that they care. Um, And I was very, very um, lucky. I was very, very lucky to have, to, to be surrounded by so much of this stuff. And uh, my wife had sort of been sharing the updates before I really just started to sort of jump back into things. So people knew I was at the hospital and they knew what I was going through. And they were it was incredible to see them really sort of pulling for me. Um, and then when we got home and the real sort of recovery work begins, um, there was all sorts of stuff that came to the house. I mean, I remember one afternoon there was a uh um i forget what you call it like a peapod truck like a like a home delivery grocery service truck mm-hmm. that came to the house and i said to my wife did you get groceries she said no um i said well they probably have the wrong house let's go out and see what the deal is 
and um, Corcoran had had um, had ordered a week's worth of groceries for us and had it delivered to the house. And the, the guy, the guy sort of brought it all in and left. And I just burst into tears because I, I couldn't I couldn't believe it, what people were doing. And, you know, it's 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 an amazing thing to see. And I, I really believe that the real estate industry is is it, it's what we're all about is looking after each other um, with 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 when when each other needs it. Right. And um, seeing it firsthand, as I'm sure you did as well, Bill, seeing it firsthand is is um, is is quite something. Oh, you hit the nail on the head there. It, it's an amazing uh, it's an amazing group of people, and and the ability to uh, know all those people are pulling for you makes a huge difference. You're right. Yeah, it, it makes a massive difference. It makes recovery um, easier. It makes recovery easier. That's the best way I could put it. Well. In the opening, I talked about this latest transition from Matthew Shadbolt. And Matthew, <laughs> you've really come full circle. I think, I don't know about you. I know I connected with the Inman Group around 2010. I think you were even earlier than that because Brad definitely would have been interested in what the Corcoran Group was doing pretty early. Um, but t- talk about the value that you know Inman and the Connect events kind of delivered to you personally. And, yeah. and of course, let's talk about uh, the latest announcement that came out of Inman News, and that is your hiring there. and and uh, your connection now within them. Sure. I mean, as as you can probably tell, I'm incredibly passionate about the real estate industry. I I, I really believe in it. And, um, you know, I say that with, with the experience of worked working inside a brokerage, but also working with brokerages on the media side. And um, my, my, my relationship with, with Inman is, is a fairly long one. I, I, I started as a, as a connect attendee in 2007 and you know the, you know I started as an attendee then I then I became a speaker um I won their innovator award uh, in 2010 um and I've written for their website um and then eventually most recently I, I was a sponsor of connect during my time at the, at the New York Times um so I I think that Inman fulfills a very very important role within the industry which is what is going on and uh, and answers the question for agents and brokerages what should i do about this how should i think about this stuff and in many ways they do really sort of set the agenda for what's important and in terms of time and attention for agents and brokerages and i think um i think that they 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 serve a very very important role in terms of education, knowledge, guidance, and insight for an industry going un, undergoing incredible change, technology change, cultural change, um, financial change, um, personnel change, um, any way you cut it. I mean, you know, what's going on with MLSs at the moment? What's going on with venture and, and investment at the moment? What's going on with the current administration? There's so much of it that intersects with housing um, in terms of what's important to people. And Inman has, has historically just charted this incredible path for agents and brokerages over the past 20 years through all of it. And, um, you know, some of the best experiences I've ever had in real estate have been at Connect. Um, I, I love both the Connect conferences. And so to see it from the inside now, 
um, is is and sort of be a part of being able to shape what that looks like um, and and work with the editorial team and 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 build great products there. Um, you know, it, it 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 is a bit of a homecoming for me because it's a community that I'm very passionate about, and I, I was part of that community. I still consider myself to be a, a part of that community, but just in a different capacity now. Um, but to build things that are really, really helpful for people that really need it, um, that is very exciting for me. You know, I want to get to a couple of things that are that are really help an agent who's listening to the to the to the show to this episode, and much like in um, you talked about it in. 2006 to 2014, your time at, at Corcoran Group, things were just exploding all over the place in the world of social media. That was kind of the thing. It's a whole nother level of technology explosion going on right now, right? I mean, the, the, the ease of video and the different resources and all the different places you can create video. Then there's artificial intelligence and machine learning and virtual and augmented reality. I mean, there's so much going on. Tell me, what, what, what does the individual agent, in your opinion, how does an individual agent decide where to even begin to either focus? <laughs> where do they focus yeah. their energy? How do they do that? Do they just stay connected to a group like Inman? Or what do you think? Well, that's the million-dollar question, right? It's like, right. where should I spend my time and resources, right? Where, where should my, my attention be? I mean, I, I'm very um, – how can I put this? I, I, I don't think the answer is anything really to do with technology. The, the means to do anything are available to you, right? Like you, if, if you want to go fly a drone and create incredible aerial footage, you can go do that now, right? So, um, you know, the, the means to produce anything you want, that's not really a problem anymore, right? Um, but what is, a, what, is, what is more interesting, I think, is that I don't think that we've really solved the people problem as, as an industry, there are fundamental sort of fears and questions that our customers have around our value um, and around our expertise that are in doubt at the moment, especially amongst younger people. And when I think about sort of like where to spend time, I always like to start with this idea of like, what is the people problem? So at an individual customer level, it might be like, how do I, how do I really help, um, you know, this 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 young couple that have never bought a house before? How do I really help them understand, um, you know, what what might be a great fit for them and their and their lifestyle? How do I how do I communicate things in a in a safe way around like neighborhood choices that that kind of thing? How do I how do I just articulate that? Every single question in their head, I can either answer for them or go get the answer for them. Mm -hmm. And this is a really hard thing to articulate on Twitter and Facebook, right? Because you have to do it for years in order to really build up enough equity to where people think of you like that as, as like a somebody that really owns an area. And we we did this for years at, at Corcoran before it really sort of caught caught people's attention. But um, this idea of um, this idea of being as helpful as you possibly can all the time is is a real challenge for people in the industry, I think, because number one, it's exhausting. And and number two, you don't have the answers to every single possible question. Um, so this 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 notion of, of sort of owning a particular geography, I think, is interesting, but it's sort of 
something that happens in the minority. Um, so I think, you know, there are certain, in, in my head, there are certain agents that own geographies within my network. I think of Inez in Miami, for example, that would be like a good, uh, a good example of that. Um, uh, or Sean in Ohio, or um, uh, there's, you know, there's a number of them here in the city where I would think of like people associated with neighborhoods or, or particular locations. But I think it goes way beyond this idea of local expertise. I think it's, it's just being as helpful as possible all the time. And, you know, there really isn't like a technology that solves for that. Technology helps you um, get that across to people in, in a, you know, in numerous ways throughout the day. But, you know, what is it really that people are struggling with? And I, I'm not sure that as an industry, we really understand that enough at the moment. Matthew, I've had you here way longer than I asked of you. And so I'm going to wrap up with the same final question that I've asked every guest in all 108 previous episodes. And that is, if you uh -oh. can, give, <laughs> if you can, <laughs> trust me, you, no one's duplicated an answer yet. So there's no pressure. Okay. 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 <laughs> if, if you could give one piece of advice to a new agent just getting started in the business, what would it be? Um... I would say the the greatest commodity you have is your time. That's that's really what you have. Um, be very very aware of your time and attention, and don't be afraid to say no to things that aren't working. That's awesome, and that is uh, the first time that answer has been spoken. So well done. <laughs> so. Wow. Okay, that was, a, that was a lot of pressure right at the end there, Bill. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, this is Ernest Miner on the goal line with the fumble. It's there was a, there was a chance I could drop the ball there. Oh my! Fortunately, you didn't. So that's good. Maybe that bodes well <laughs> for the Browns of let's say next year. <laughs> Matthew, if someone wants to reach out to you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Uh, I'm a pretty easy Google, but uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Matthew Shadbolt on Twitter. And uh, same thing, Facebook.com slash Matthew Shadbolt. Um, yeah, I'm, and, or I'm Matthew Inman.com uh, if you want to reach out to me by email. Matthew, thank you so much for taking some time today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Can't wait to see you in January. And, and thank you so much. Yeah, the first round's on me, Bill. I'll see you in January. <laughs> thank you.